Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. My name is Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. And this is episode 31 of the Anxious Poets Podcast. This episode and the next one are going to be slightly different in style and format. As you may remember from the last podcast with Belden Lane, which, by the way, has had so many downloads, I'm so grateful. Belden's such a lovely man, and I think it touched a chord with many people. You may remember that I said that me and my son were going on an odyssey, a trip to the Midwest of the USA. Well, we did, and subsequently I wrote a Substack journal about the trip in uh, six parts and I thought actually it would be a really nice thing to share those uh, journal entries with you on this podcast and I'll put a link in the blurb at the end so that you can read them too and there are lots of photographs that Tom and I took that you might want to see. So I'm inviting you to come along with Tom and I on our odyssey through the Midwest from Denver, Colorado, right up through Wyoming and South Dakota, through Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks, through Idaho to Boise and then to Salt Lake City. At the head of each entry is a poem and then subsequent reflections and talk about the journey. So come along with us, me and Tom, and see what you make of our trip through the Midwest. Part 1 from a visit to Fort Laramie. An old faded photograph of a Fort Laramie parley is evidence of another way. The river bend behind and off to the right the army jailhouse with its hard iron bars and locking doors. They're sitting on the ground in a council circle, facing into the issues they speak of. Elders of the Lakota and Cheyenne who knew that to face an enemy in a circle of equality was the only way to measure true peace. These circles had served them well for generations. Speaking sticks handed down through bloodlines of oratory and long seasons of deep-seated listening. This was not the white way. His was the way of politics and shifting alliances, the dominance of rhetoric and one sent to achieve the will of others far away. The treaties of these men were no sooner made than flouted, and when the greed for gold was awoken by its unearthing in the Black Hills, then all bets were off, all oaths broken. 
We still have not learned, it seems, that there is another way, that leaders are those who walk the path, not those who shout the loudest. Crazy Horse, it is said, went through the camp with his head down and refused to engage in the recitation of his victories. Though there is no photograph of him, we do have this picture of the elders seated on the ground, ready to make a noble treaty to save the bison and keep their land. This photograph of council is still testament that we can take a different path. We can sit on the earth and find another way. My son Tom and I decided a few months ago that we wanted to make a trip through the Midwest of the USA. It all started with us watching the Paramount Plus series Yellowstone, set in Wyoming and Montana and on the edge of the National Park, the landscapes looked awe-inspiring. I then watched the spin-off 1883 and learned more about the Oregon Trail and was even more intrigued by the thought of the Wild West. Though we had been to the USA many times visiting New Mexico, Arizona, Utah in the southwest and Oregon in the Pacific Northwest, we had never seen the Midwest, often referred to as the flyover states. This was an area where the frontier once existed between the white incomers and the Indian American lands with all the heartache and tragedy associated with that history. A frontier and a history that we wanted to see and feel for ourselves. So we worked out an itinerary and began to plan our visit. The best direct flight was to Denver, Colorado. And so, on Friday the 18th of August, we flew out of Heathrow, USA bound. The next day we hired a car and headed north, crossing the state line between Colorado and Wyoming, and the beginning of our long drive through the prairie. Those endless grasslands, green and windswept, have their own lonely beauty. After a night in Cheyenne, the capital of the state of Wyoming, we decided that our first stop had to be Fort Laramie. This fort was established by trappers in the 1830s and by the 1840s had become an army fort. As soon as the Oregon Trail became firmly established, the whites felt they needed stronger protection from the native peoples. In fact, up until then, relations between the Indians and the newcomers had been largely friendly. The Oregon Trail went from the Missouri River to Oregon at the northwestern edge of the landmass that was to become the USA. It was the draw of green pastures and the mountains of Oregon that pulled thousands of European refugees and immigrants to make the arduous and often deadly 2,000-mile journey. The fact that it took them through the southern part of Lakota Territory was to become a seminal part of the history of the West. In the National Park Information Centre, we read about the different treaties that were made with the Indian nations of the region at Fort Laramie. In 1851, there was a treaty that allowed safe passage for those on the Oregon Trail and brought together many peoples, the Cheyenne, Sioux, Arapaho, Crow, Assiniboine, Mandan, Hidatsa and the Arikara nations, all pledged peace with one another. 
It was also known as the Horse Creek Treaty and it set forth the traditional territorial claims of the tribes. It is said that all that was asked for was the width of the settlers' wagon wheels. For this privilege, annuities were to be paid by the US government, and these were collected each year by the Indian peoples from Fort Laramie. Unfortunately, as well as all kinds of changes to the treaty that occurred, including the length of time the annuities would be paid, being cut from 50 years to 10, gold was discovered in the Black Hills of what is now South Dakota, right in the middle of Lakota Territory. By 1868, a new treaty was being urged on the Indian nations that would include the sale of the Black Hills and the gold therein, gold which held no attraction to the Indians. The decision of many tribes was that they were fighting a losing battle against an implacable foe who seems to have endless resources. The most famous of the leaders being Red Cloud and Spotted Tail, both of whom had fought bravely and with some success. They were rewarded with their own agencies a predecessor of the reservation. However, what they lost was the nomadic existence that had been their way of life before the arrival of the whites and, of course, the Black Hills, from which, some say, five billion dollars worth of gold was mined. There was also the matter of the wholesale slaughter of the bison. In the 16th century, North America contained 25 to 30 million buffalo bison. By the late 1880s, less than a hundred remained in the wild in the Great Plains states. This destroyed the entire symbiotic way of life that the indigenous cultures had created around the bison. This act of ecocide on the part of the white settlers was devastating to the Indians, economically, sociologically and mythologically. No better method of subjugation could have been devised. Crazy Horse, probably the most famous Lakota, along with Sitting Bull, did not agree with the putting of pen to paper, or the ceding of land and rights, and so began the final conflict of what many historians call the Indian Wars. As we walked around the fort in the warm sunshine and looked at the recreated mess hall and sleeping quarters and the officers' houses, and then reached the teepee that was the only nod to the presence of the indigenous people who lived around the fort for many years, we felt history seeping out of the soil. The photograph at the head of this post was one that we saw in the visitor centre and triggered all my memories of engaging in the way of counsel as envisaged by Frank Zimmerman and Gigi Coyle in their book of that name and the counsel training I did with the Centre for Counsel at Oracle in Arizona. Though this never claimed to have any direct lineage or cultural appropriation from the First Nations, it did have echoes from these ways of seeking wisdom and common ground. I've always thought that this way of doing business, whether in organisations, families or communities, would yield a different outcome than our top-down, pyramidal, power-orientated ways of getting things done. What struck me powerfully in the photograph 
was the fact that the Indians were sitting on the earth, maintaining a connection to the land that we so desperately need to re-establish for ourselves in this present age of climate crisis. I also felt the powerful difference between the square, solid structures of the soldiers and the round fluidity of the Indian shelter. We left in a quiet reverie, and as we drove away, I began to compose the poem that was at the head of this piece, trying to capture all the feelings that swirled around and through us as we walked around the fort, and then as we drove the prairie to Rapid City. Part 2. Wounded Knee The dust plumed from our tyres down the dirt road to the Pine Ridge Reservation. The oncoming trucks produced a burnt sienna haze, dauntless as the afternoon's heat. We made an act of faith and plunged on through, trusting the road to lead us on. And then, as we entered Indian land, we saw the stark brown sign pointing us toward Wounded Knee. Passing shacky homes with rusting pickups, we travelled fifty miles straight. Arriving, we saw only the great red sign outlining in white words the terrible deeds that led to 146 men, women and children of the Lakota people laying dead on the wintry ground. We walked up the track to the cemetery on the hill and saw the medicine bundles and gravestones. To come to Wounded Knee is to see nothing other than red deeds and painful words and know that here ended the ghost dancers and the armed resistance of the Lakota people. Yet we could hear the blood crying shame from the earth and the second siege, occupiers calling for reparation after long years of tears and grief. We left, but part of us remains buried at Wounded Knee and waits again to rise when the voice of this earth is heard once more. The world changes and people change. That, that is, at least what we hope, as long as it's for the better. I grew up with this notion of progress. As a child of the 60s, it seemed that we were on a non-stop trajectory toward a better world, a modern utopia. The next stage of our journey through the Midwest challenged all these ideas at a gut-wrenching level and asked Tom and I some profound questions about the way we as humans fail to see and hear each other when we make cultural, or dare I say imperial, assumptions that are never tested by curious and genuine dialogue with real people. We had driven on from Fort Laramie through the endless prairie and crossed the state line between Wyoming and South Dakota entering Rapid City, our home, for the next three nights. This part of South Dakota has so much to see and we didn't want to miss anything. When I was guiding on David White's Lakeland walking tour, I was lucky enough to meet a number of wonderful Americans who gave me loads of hints and tips for our trip and so we had a comprehensive itinerary. Firstly, we set off for the Badlands National Park an area that immediately reminded us of the southwest, of Arizona or New Mexico, full of eroded buttes and pinnacles in creamy sandstone. It was hot, around 40 degrees centigrade, but also incredibly impressive and photogenic. 
We could not, however, escape the reality we had encountered at Fort Laramie. Land always has a history, and in this region it's often harsh. In 1868, at the Second Treaty of Fort Laramie, the United States assured the Lakota that the Badlands would forever belong to them. In 1889, however, the treaty was broken and the Badlands were confiscated by the United States and unilaterally incorporated into a national park. At this time, the Lakota Indians practised the ghost dance in this area and this scared the incomers, something I'll come back to. Suffice to say, it was a powerful evocation of the independence of the Lakota and their rights to live unmolested. As we researched this region, we realised that we were caught up in an ongoing story. In 1980, the US Supreme Court awarded compensation to the Lakota for the abrogation of the 1868 treaty, but the Lakota did not accept the money which is reputed to have amounted to a billion dollars. The reason? They wanted the land back. The strength of a tree, the old ones say, comes not from growing thicker in the good years when there is water, but from staying alive in the bad, dry times. Joseph M. Marshall III in The Journey of Crazy Horse When we pulled away from the visitor centre, I gave Tom a choice. We could either carry on the astonishingly scenic route back to Rapid City with great overlooks and build-outs from which to view the landscape or we could head to Wounded Knee. The journey would be across the Pine Ridge Reservation and was a good 200 mile round trip. He responded immediately, Yes, we should go, Dad. It's important. Wounded Knee rang an ominous note in both our memories. I had read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee when I was younger and so remembered that this was the site of a terrible massacre and marked the end of the so-called Indian Wars. Tom, being a voracious reader of history, also knew what the site signified. As we drove away from the Badlands, our sat-nav took us onto a 40-mile dirt road. These are unmade roads of gravel and chippings, and as you traverse them, you raise clouds of dust and dirt. The real kicker was when we met construction trucks coming in the opposite direction, throwing out dark clouds of thick brown smut. It was unnerving to drive through, hoping you were continuing in a straight line and still on the road. We then followed the sign for the Pine Ridge Reservation, and thankfully, better roads. As we entered the reservation, we began to notice the small homesteads, mainly trailers, usually with an old vehicle out front. On the journey, we were listening to an audiobook of Joseph M. Marshall's The Journey of Crazy Horse and telling us about Wounded Knee. The quote mentioned above hit us very powerfully. The time we were hearing of were bad, dry times. We also realised that the times today, given the obvious deprivation, may not be that much better. Pine Ridge, we had read, was the site of several events that marked milestones in the history between the Lakota and the US government. Stronghold Table, a mesa, in what is today the Lakota part of the Badlands, was the site of the last ghost dances. 
These were rituals based on the teaching of a Paiute spiritual leader, Wavoka, from the northwestern USA. His ideas spread like wildfire among the Indian peoples as they invoked the spirits of their dead and the eradicated bison who would return and with them their cherished way of life. A development of the ghost dance was the wearing of ghost shirts, which were special clothing for warriors. Perhaps they would repel bullets. The Lakota interpretation drew from their belief in a renewed earth in which all evil is washed away. This Lakota interpretation included the removal of all European Americans from their lands. They told the people they could dance a new world into being. There would be landslides, earthquakes and big winds. Hills would pile up upon each other. The earth would roll up like a carpet and all the white man's ugly things, the stinking new animals, sheep and pigs, the fences, the telegraph poles, the mines and factories. Underneath would be the wonderful old new world as it had been before the white fat takers came. The white men will be rolled up, disappear and go back to their own continent. Lame deer. The US authorities attempt to repress this movement eventually led to the Wounded Knee Massacre on a cold winter day on the 29th of December 1890. A mixed band of Miniconju Lakota and Hunkpapa Lakota, led by Chief Spotted Elk, sought sanctuary at Pine Ridge after fleeing the Standing Rock Agency where Sitting Bill had been killed during efforts to arrest him. The families were intercepted and attacked by a heavily armed detachment of the 7th Cavalry, which killed many women and children as well as warriors. This was the last large engagement between US forces and Native Americans and marked the end of the Western frontier. What was most apparent as we drove was the cultural life of the Lakota people was still very much alive. It has weathered all these storms. Their language is still extant and spoken, though the counties that make up the reservation are some of the poorest in the US. We saw that there is now the Aglala Lakota College, a tribal college which offers four-year degrees and a good education. Our respect for that culture was growing as we travelled. Not that we in any way think we can understand a culture just by visiting, but we did seek to learn and appreciate and honour a culture which white people have done so much harm to. After 50 miles of almost arrow straight road, we arrived at the massacre site. The sun was high in the cobalt blue sky and we pulled up in front of a large red sign with white text on either side of it. It was hot as we stepped out of the air-conditioned car to be greeted by a small Indian girl offering us small trinkets of jewellery. We declined but gave her a donation. Then we began to read the sign. Massacre of Wounded Knee On December the 29th, 1890, Chief Bigfoot, with his Miniconju and Hunkpapa Sioux band of 106 warriors, 250 women and children, were encamped on this flat, surrounded by the US 7th Cavalry, 470 soldiers, commanded by Colonel Forsyth. The Messiah Craze possessed many Indians who left the vicinity of the agencies to ghost dance during the summer and fall of 1890. 
unrest on the Pine Ridge Reservation was partly due to the reduction of beef rations by Congress and to the ghost dancing of Chief Sitting Bull, Hump, Kicking Bear and Short Bull. The Sioux were told by Kicking Bear and Short Bull that by wearing the ghost shirts, the ghost dancing warriors would become immune to the white man's bullets and could openly defy the soldiers and white settlers and bring back the buffalo herds. On November the 15th, 1890, Indian agent Royer, Lakota Wakapa, at Pine Ridge called for his troops, and by the 1st of December, 1890, several thousand US regulars were assembled in the area of Dakota Territory. On December the 15th, 1890, Chief Sitting Bull was killed by a Lieutenant Bullhead of the Standing Rock Indian Police Force. Forty of Sitting Bull's braves escaped from the Grand River and joined Bigfoot's band on the Deep Creek to camp and ghost dance on the south fork of the Cheyenne River. Chief Bigfoot was in close scrutiny of Lieutenant Colonel Sumner and his troops and on December the 23rd, 1890, they were ordered to arrest Bigfoot as a hostile. However, the Bigfoot band had already silently slipped away from the Cheyenne country into the Badlands heading for Pine Ridge. On December the 28th, 1890, without a struggle, Chief Bigfoot surrendered to the US 7th Cavalry, Major Whitesides, at the site marked by a sign five miles north of here. The band was then escorted to Wounded Knee, camping that night under guard. Reinforcements of the US 7th Cavalry, including one company of Indian scouts, arrived at Wounded Knee from Pine Ridge on the morning of December the 29th, 1890. Colonel Forsyth took command of a force of 470 men. A battery of Fort Hotchkiss guns was placed on the hill 400 feet west of here, overlooking the Indian encampment. Bigfoot's band were encircled at 9am by a line of foot soldiers and cavalry. Chief Bigfoot, sick with pneumonia, lay in a warm tent provided by Colonel Forsyth in the centre of the camp. A white flag flew there, placed by the Indians... Directly in the rear of the Indian camp was a dry draw running east and west. The Indians were ordered to surrender their arms before proceeding to Pine Ridge. Captain Wallace, with an army detail, began searching the teepees for hidden weapons. During this excitement, Yellowbird, a medicine man, walked among the braves blowing an eagle bone whistle, inciting the warriors to act, declaring that the ghost shirts worn by the warriors would protect them from the soldiers' bullets. A shot was fired and all hell broke loose. The troops fired a deadly volley into the council warriors, killing nearly half of them. A bloody hand-to-hand struggle followed, all the more desperate since the Indians were armed with mostly clubs, knives and revolvers. The Hotchkiss guns fired two-pound explosive shells on the groups, indiscriminately killing warriors, women, children and their own disarming soldiers. Soldiers were killed by the crossfire of their comrades in this desperate engagement. Surviving Indians stampeded in the wild disorder for the shelter of the 200-foot draw to the south, escaping west and east in the draw and north down Wounded Knee Creek. Pursuit by the 7th Cavalry resulted in the killing of more men, women and children, causing the battle to be referred to as the Wounded Knee Massacre. One hour later, 146 Indian men, women and children lay dead in the Wounded Knee Creek Valley. The bodies of many were scattered along a distance of two miles from the encounter. Twenty soldiers were killed on the field and 16 later died of wounds. 
Wounded soldiers and Indians alike were taken to the Pine Ridge Agency. A blizzard came up. Four days later, an army detail gathered up the Indian dead and buried them in a common grave at the top of a hill northwest of here. A monument marks this grave. Ghost dancing ended with this encounter. The Wounded Knee Battlefield is the site of the last armed conflict between the Sioux Indians and the United States Army. Reading these words under the silent blue sky created a deep sense of tragedy and reverie. The fact that there were no slick visitor centre, just a little stall selling Indian jewellery and a branch-covered canopy made the whole site feel even more stark. We noticed the cemetery on a hill just across the road and we quietly made our way up the path. The small memorial marked the mass grave the Indian dead were put into. There were other graves around it and many medicine bundles and tributes placed on the ground. We paid our respects and walked back to the car. When our spirit tells us it is time to weep, we should weep. It is part of the ritual, if you will, of putting sadness in perspective and gaining control of the situation. Grief has a purpose. Grieving does not mean you are weak. It's the first step toward regaining balance and strength. Grieving is part of the tempering process. Joseph M. Marshall III As we drove away, the haunting atmosphere pervaded our journey back to Rapid City. Tom began to recall that this wasn't the last conflict to occur at Wounded Knee. In 1973 there was an occupation of the site by a number of Lakota and followers of the American Indian movement, AIM. The latter being a civil rights organisation looking to forward the rights of American Indians. What was initially a dispute about tribal presidency became a siege and a standoff with the United States Marshal Service and the FBI lasting 71 days. There were deaths on either side and subsequent arrests and trials. Leonard Peltier, an American Indian activist, remains in prison to this day. Amnesty International has issued a call to President Biden to grant clemency to him. As I said at the beginning of this post, this place challenges the idea that we learn from our actions. Yet the resilience and perseverance of the Lakota and those who have become their allies and supporters reveals an ability that is deep within us when we listen to the cries of history and enter a curious and genuine dialogue with each other. That night I began to form the poem at the head of this piece and work on it over the subsequent days. As some of you who read this are from the USA, friends from various places, I know that I'm commenting as an outsider and probably miss some of the nuances of these issues. So forgive us. We're only recording our reactions as we made our journey across this extraordinary country and incredible landscape that sits in the imagination long after you leave it. We are also not all blind to the role of our own country in many colonial tragedies, not least in the USA. I hope the poem and these thoughts and photos are a tiny finger pressing on the arc of the moral universe. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Martin Luther King. 
Poetry, Anxiety and Vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Part 3. Thunder over the Lamar Valley. They say he was a thunder dreamer. From the journey of Crazy Horse, Joseph M. Marshall III. The strange throaty growls of the bison filled the mid-afternoon air as the herd grazed easily along the Lamar Valley. One side of the sky, to the north, bright with blue sunlight on distant peaks. The south side heavy with the weight of rainy portents, slowly darkening. A lightning shaft splits the two halves of the horizon, followed by the inevitable voice of the thunders, amplifying the buffalo grunts into a rolling crescendo. We felt in that moment the faculty of earth and sky to dwarf us, and yet at the same time were sentient to the powers that made the buffalo, that made us, that made all of this. These powers find their echo in the valleys of our sleeping, and if we pay attention, we may become thunder dreamers, and know a life not of gain, but of giving, giving to the herd. After our day in the Badlands, and then our striking visit to Wounded Knee, we decided to try and pack in a whole lot of sightseeing like good tourists. The first on the list was Bear Country USA. This was a kind of insurance policy against potentially shy wildlife in Yellowstone. This place is what we in the UK call a safari park, a drive-through approach to the wild. It boasted a whole host of American animals that can be viewed from the safety of your vehicle. Though somewhat sad to see these magnificent animals in fenced spaces, we were comforted to know they were rescued and unable to live in the wild. We saw wolves, black bears, bison, coyotes and elk to name a few highlights. From there, we headed for the Crazy Horse Memorial. This is a monument being carved out of the Thunderhead Mountain in the Black Hills of South Dakota. It's 17 miles from Mount Rushmore where the US presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln and Roosevelt are immortalised. The memorial was commissioned by Henry Standing Bear, a Lakota elder, to be sculpted by Kozak Zielowski. It's executed and operated by the Crazy Horse Memorial Foundation, a non-profit organisation. We saw it way before we reached the toll grate to the property. As you can see in the photographs, if you look on the Substack journal, it's both impressive and unfinished. It was begun in 1948 and the project accepts no federal or state money. Apparently, the initial sculptor, Zielowski, worked on Mount Rushmore under Gertzen Borglum, its chief architect. Luther Standing Bear, Henry's older brother, campaigned for Crazy Horse to be one of the faces alongside the presidents, but his wishes fell on deaf ears, and so the project you see in the photo began. We were deeply affected both by the carving that will possibly become the second largest statue in the world, and by the visitor centre that helps fund the work. There is a myriad of art and information on offer in the beautiful buildings below the mountain. We learned that his name in Lakota was Tosunko Widko. 
properly translated it means his crazy horse. We had continued to listen to Joseph M. Marshall's book, The Journey of Crazy Horse, so we were suffused with his spirit as we wandered the museum and shop. Outside again we saw the maquette of how the finished work will look. He is pointing in answer to the question, where are your lands? Underneath the maquette is recorded his answer, my lands are where my dead lie buried. With the story and image of Tusunka Witko in our minds, we left for Mount Rushmore. It seemed silly not to go and see the images of the presidents as we were so close. It was a very different experience. The car park and the whole visitor thing reminded me of a, visiting a National Trust monument in the UK. It was all very slick and well run and had that almost faux sense of reverence. We found ourselves walking up an avenue which sported plaques and flags honouring the 50 states, telling us what year they joined the Union and in what order this occurred, such as New Mexico being the 47th state to be added in 1912, a place we have visited many times. At the end are the huge images of the four presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt and Lincoln, chosen to represent the nation's birth, growth development and preservation, respectively. None of these memorials are without controversy, as one might guess. Some American Indians are not so keen on the Crazy Horse Memorial, feeling that the mountains are sacred to the people and shouldn't be tampered with. Equally, for some of the same reasons, there are strong objections to the presidents. The Lakota call this area Thankusala Sakpe meaning the Six Grandfathers, an area that the Arapaho, Cheyenne and Lakota resorted to as sacred places to pray and bury their dead. It became known as Mount Rushmore because the Heaney Harney Peak Tin Company hired the New York attorney Charles E. Rushmore to confirm the company's land claims over the Black Hills, contrary to the treaties. His name became associated with the area and is the white name. With all these conflicting thoughts, we left the presidents to their silent contemplation of history and embodying of American leadership, along with the partial figure of Tosunka with Co. In the next two or three days, we made our way to Yellowstone Park, where we were due to stay for three nights. We re-entered Wyoming and stopped along the way in Sheridan and Cody. Sheridan, named for General Philip Sheridan, active in the Civil War and the so-called Indian Wars, also instrumental in the setting up of Yellowstone. As we returned to the hotel in Sheridan after our evening meal, we were treated to a spectacular sunset over the Black Hills, or Shining Mountains as the Lakota name them. The sunset was followed by an equally spectacular moonrise. Waking up, Tom, who'd been nervous of driving an automatic on the wrong side of the road and the wrong side of the vehicle, said he'd have a go. What we didn't realise was that our route to Cody would be over these same shining mountains. This journey was like driving the Snake Pass between Sheffield and Manchester, but on steroids. Tom did masterfully and began to really enjoy it. We arrived for a night in Cody, named after Buffalo Bill Cody, for his part in the founding in 1896. We wandered up the enticing Main Street after breakfast, and then as we left to enter the park, we called in at the Buffalo Centre of the West. 
This is a Smithsonian-sponsored set of five museums celebrating the West, natural history, cultural history and art, the history of firearms, Buffalo Bill shows and a renowned research centre. Entering the park, we noticed the drop in temperature. We had ascended to 8,000 feet as we moved into the park and that cooled the air. Our cabin had no aircon, but we did not need it. Cool mornings and sunny days are what greeted us on our three nights in the Lake Lodge by Yellowstone Lake. On our first full day, we opted to drive up the Lamar Valley. Rumour had it that this was where you were most likely to see the park's myriad wildlife. The sensible and low speed limits on the park's roads mean that journeys take more time, but also that you are able to take in the astonishing vistas that you are constantly presented with. I'll say more about Yellowstone in the next post. It's important to note here that it is the first national park possibly in the world, and it sits on the Yellowstone caldera, the largest supervolcano on the continent. More in the next piece. We went to the general store in Fishing Bridge, near our accommodation, and then with breakfast patty consumed and picnic sourced, we headed off. The drive was amazing, past rapids, falls, canyons, mud volcanoes, and into the wide open plains of the Lamar Valley. We happened upon a horse riding tour, and this is where I took the photo that you can see on the substack. To Tom and I it seemed quintessentially American, horses tethered to a little wooden post with this vast wilderness behind them and an incredible sky. We then stopped to photograph a lone bison with great excitement, only to find a huge herd of them further on. This is where we decided to stop and eat our lunch. We'd again been listening to the journey of Crazy Horse. As we ate, the sky changed and a distant thunderstorm came closer to us. This passage came back to us. A thunder dreamer had powers because the Wakinyan, the thunder beings, came to him or her in a dream or during a vision quest. Such a person literally had a vision that was a connection to the most powerful natural element on the plains and spiritually becomes a heyoka, a wise fool or a sacred clown, if you will. A heyoka is a walking contradiction. His or her behaviour at many times may seem crazy or against his or her own character, but in behaving contrary to good sense or one's basic character or habits, the heyoka is actually performing a spiritual ceremony. A heyoka sacrifices his or her ego and reputation for the sake of the people. I believe that Crazy Horse was a thunder dreamer. That was his journey because the Wahinkan came to him in a vision and that vision showed the way he was expected to live his life. The vision likely didn't provide specifics, only that he was to walk the path of giving as opposed to gaining. That would seem to explain why Crazy Horse always wore plain clothing and never donned a feather bonnet, which he was certainly entitled to do as an accomplished warrior. That would seem to explain why he didn't participate in the Wagtogla Kapi, the telling of one's victories. He did, in fact, sacrifice his own ego and reputation for the sake of his people and in doing so, he was honouring his journey. The journey of Crazy Horse, Joseph M. Marshall III. Our view that afternoon, and the way the landscape, 
the animal life and the weather interacted made a powerful impression on us. And that night, in our cabin, I wrote the poem at the beginning of this piece. Thunder over the Lamar Valley. And so here we pause on our journey across the Midwest. The next three parts will be on episode 32 of the Anxious Poets podcast. I look forward to speaking to you then. Go well. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast.